3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Good morning. My name's Chris, and on today's show, with luck, I'll be having two interviews. And it's about uh, cycling provision and infrastructure uh, happening around Melbourne, especially within the cities of Melbourne and Moreland. So first up, I'll be speaking to Councillor James uh, Conlon from Moreland Council, and my second interview will be a catch-up, another catch-up, with Councillor Rohan Lepard from City of Melbourne. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queerways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. Good morning and we're back online with 3CR Radio and on the line today we have... Councillor James Conlon from City of Moreland. You there, James? Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. Good. Sorry for a little bit of dead air there. Um, City of Moreland have been doing some really interesting work with a lot of uh, uh, public support uh, up there, and uh, we're just going to quickly discuss that. Can we just kick off with the, the was it the Carlisle Street Separated Lines? Um, yeah. So Moreland is. Uh, in during the COVID period, when it, uh, about a year ago, uh, made a commitment to start to build a lot more active transport infrastructure uh, in the form of pop-ups. Um, so yes, yeah, so a lot of that's going on in Moreland. But then, in addition to that, uh, Moreland Council decided to uh, use the opportunity when they're reconstructing a street in Coburg called Decal Street um, and turn that into a uh, separated bike lane on each side. Um, as well as to try and slow the traffic down there, which goes past the school, Moreland Primary School. Um, and, yeah, just to generally make the street a lot safer and less of a rat run. So that work is continuing, and there should, we'll be um, constructing that, I think, later. Uh, I think it's next year. It's cool. been out to consultation. Good. And you, at the moment, there's uh, trial-separated uh, lanes in Pascal Vale and Brunswick. 
isn't isn't the one in Brunswick being actually being built at the moment? Yeah, so one of them is on Albion Street. Um, so that was it's just we're putting those uh, yellow separated barriers on one side of the street. Um, there was a plan for sort of like separated bike lanes on there, like normal wider ones, but we it's a very narrow road, so the designs change, and it's um, uh, the separated lane's going to be on the south side, not the north side. Um, and then later, I think it's this week, there will be um, separated bike lanes built on, pop-up bike lanes again on Dawson Street between the Upfield Bypass and the West Brunswick Shimmy, so about 500 metres on each side of the road. So that's really exciting. Yeah, because um, that's really good to get that going, especially with uh, you've got uh, really good support amongst the, the councillors in Moreland as well. Yeah, so this whole package of works, the pop-up bike um, and pedestrian works, was passed at the last uh, budget meeting last year, um, and it was I think it was $1.8 million uh, was uh, spent on that package, and I'm pretty sure that was unanimously supported. There were a lot of councillors who voted to increase that um, spending um, because they understood the importance of you know, changing the way, trying to help change the way that we get around our city and make it um, safer and easier to walk and ride. Um, yeah, and it is good. We're seeing pretty strong support across all councillors for um, these types of projects. So even a couple of months ago, I introduced a motion to for council to begin the work of um, building some better uh, east-west bike infrastructure um, on... Uh, Dawson Street slash Glenline Road and also up on Munro Street, Harding Street in Coburg. Um, and that was, you know, unanimously supported. So yeah, it's really good. There's, we're not seeing the sort of divisive politics that this sort of stuff can generate in other areas. So yeah, so that's really positive. Well, it's kind of showing that Moreland, uh, there's a template there and also that other council, councils nearby and other parts around Victoria should be looking at uh, your model. Because wasn't there a Monash Uni survey, I think last year, 2020? 80% of people in Moreland's wanted separated infrastructure and, yeah, and the council wanted to build it, but it's kind of beyond, a lot of it's beyond your scope. Um, yeah. And just to bring in, um, you know, the working uh, partnership that City of Melbourne have got with Department of Transport needs to be more integrated. Can can you see progress there with Moreland? You know, when you see things that go out of, you know, budget considerations with the council, kind of having a, a working relationship with state government. Yeah. So we're trying we're trying to kind of replicate that constructive relationship between. Um, the, the minister, the transport minister, and the mayor that exists between, yeah, in the city of Melbourne, because um, I understand that sort of collaborative approach, which I think ha- is in the form of an MOU between the two parties, has really helped city of Melbourne to, you know, build their really amazing expansion of their um, cycling infrastructure in the last um, 12 months. So we're tr- we'd really love to try and, you know, replicate that model. So we've also um, pass the motion uh, through council, sort of, yeah, proposing a kind of similar model with Moreland. Um, unfortunately, we are, the mayor is, our mayor is still waiting for a meeting with the minister to have those conversations. So, Minister Carroll, if you're listening, please give our mayor a buzz because um, we're keen to get, you know, cracking on the, all the other great projects that we've got that are shovel ready. So, that's what we're, yeah, we would love to oh, have yeah. a, yeah. 
Ben Carroll, uh, please pick up the phone or uh, return that email to Moreland's Mayor. And in, in closing, um, what what can you see like better things happening in Moreland for you know walking and cycling? Yeah, you know, this is the beginning of uh, hopefully a beautiful relationship with the Department of Transport and or you know yeah. like a good good consensus with councillors up there of um, understanding and listening to yeah. what um, residents want. Yeah, so I think um, so. All these pop-up bike lanes that we're building um, around the municipality—they're they're open. Uh, they're, they're largely trials, and there's going to be there's a long uh, period of consultation. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to the community um, giving us feedback and council taking that on board, so that we can you know can show that this is in general has widespread support and also, you know, to listen to the people who do have concerns because I think we need to bring the whole community with us. So, yeah, I think the consultation periods is a really good way for people to um, tell us what they think um, so that we can, you know, hopefully show that this has got widespread support and we can continue you know, making our streets safer to get around by a bike and by walking. Yeah, and uh, what's the uh, kind of a website uh, thing that people can look up for uh, doing feedback for Moreland? Um, it's Conversations Moreland. So if you just Google that, you'll be able to find um, the relevant links to feedback into, yeah. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, James. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. 3CR Radiothon. Community Powered Radio. Hi Chris, it's Rohan Leopard, Councillor at City of Melbourne. There's been some interesting things in the media about uh, City of Melbourne's uh, rapid implementation of separated bicycle infrastructure and at a recent meeting was at the Committee for Future Melbourne? That's right on Tuesday we had our meeting, um, Future Melbourne Committee meeting that considered the commissioning of an independent report uh, to review how some of our transport uh, patterns are unfolding in the midst of COVID uh, and to inform future decisions of the Council to support City recovery, they're the words in the resolution, but also make sure we're meeting the policy objectives in our transport strategy 2030. So that was the decision we made on Tuesday. The commissioning of that review is yet to come. Um, the agreement on that decision was unanimous, uh, but of course, uh, every councillor and different parts of the media are going to interpret what that review the purpose of the review uh, is, and a whole lot of uh, different councillors and players in the media would like that review to find different things, uh, and so it's a very political environment we find ourselves in. As would be with a lot of uh, walking and cycling um, 
initiatives across Melbourne and we're just coming out of another, I think, the fourth lockdown for Melbourne and there's pressures mounting for, uh, you know, economic activity in the CBD and the like of it. But what came out of this meeting recently of uh, support for the things that City of Melbourne have done in the last 12 months? So over the last 12 months, we've built nearly 12 or 13 kilometres of physically separated cycle lanes. And I'm immensely proud of that. Uh, these are decisions that were made before COVID to accelerate the delivery of our transport strategy 2030. But COVID really was the catalyst to get these things done very quickly. And while the city was in lockdown, we decided that um, getting that transport mode shift done while uh, the city streets um, had the capacity to have all that infrastructure work done quickly is the best time to do it. And so that means the disruption has been at a peak. It also means that we are seeing that mode shift happening faster than ever before. People can see the changes to transport in the middle of the city every time they go into the city, things have changed. And it's probably natural that now we're seeing quite a strong backlash from some parts of the media. Obviously, you know, there's no surprise that your Neil Mitchells and your Herald Sons are always against uh, the city's active transport agenda. Because we've been so successful in the rollout of our cycle infrastructure, now is the time that we're seeing quite a few uh, strong pushes from parts of the media and from some of my fellow councillors to say, well, actually, we need a review to see if this is still the right thing to do. So I'm quite nervous about that. Uh, a lot of cyclists are nervous about that. Um, I think we have demonstrated massive success. Uh, not everyone agrees with that. And, and so, you know, Bicycle Network Victoria has described this as the city of Melbourne getting the wobble. I think we're going to hold firm, but um, certainly it's an interesting time. City of Melbourne, like a lot of other councils, always are putting out open consultations and all um, things for feedback. There, there was uh, some important feedback given from the public about uh, what you've uh, done so far in terms of cycling infrastructure. Absolutely. So the submissions to this meeting on Tuesday were pretty overwhelming. So those who wrote in, and there were plenty of people who wrote in, were writing in with stories about, you know, getting on a bike for the first time in your 70s or riding into the city with your children when you never would have done that before or the uptake of cycling for women. And, you know, the, the, the diversity and uptake in cycling amongst a much broader cohort than, than pre-COVID is so encouraging. And uh, it's something that council really needs to uh, embrace and be proud of, I think. Mm. Uh, but at the end of the day, this decision that we're looking at here isn't about uh, anecdote. Uh, the review is going to collect data and that can only be a good thing. So again, the decision on Tuesday was to commission a review to gather as much data as possible and all councillors unanimously agree that that is a good thing to do. I certainly supported it. I think that we do need to understand the transport activity and patterns that are happening at the city at the moment. Um, a lot of the traffic we're seeing in the city at the moment is through traffic not destination traffic. And if we understand that a little bit better, uh, I think that we can plan better. Uh, but the stuff I'm really interested in is the massive spike in micromobility and uh, delivery vehicles, whether it's by bicycle or motorbike or, or by car. 
you know, during lockdown, meal delivery is just a, a small industry that's gone absolutely through the roof. And what that's doing to transport patterns in the central city is really, really hard to keep on top of. So we need data to inform future decisions. So I think this is a really valuable exercise. The problem is parts of the media see council is commissioning review into transport and they're reading into that whatever they want to read into that and it's given some of my colleagues just enough uh, room to say, well, this is our opportunity to wind back our bike lane agenda or this is the opportunity to expand the number of car lanes on certain roads because uh, post-COVID recovery and city recovery is all about vehicles because you can fit more shopping into the boot of the car than you can into panniers on a bicycle. And some of these arguments are really, really quite <laughs> frustrating to deal with because we proved through our transport strategy 2030 that those economic arguments are quite inept. Uh, but that's back to where we are. So, again, let's hope that this review produces some really, really good data so that the city continues to make those evidence-driven, data-driven decisions and we're not going to be uh, derailed by silly political cultural arguments of the type that we saw over the last couple of weeks. You are definitely not saying the word culture war there, but anyway, all the words. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, we, we see this all the time, but the problem, the thing is uh, there is, whether it comes to trying to uh, persuade an opposing um, attitude or a debate, there's that facts always don't, don't win. Um, it's not That's about right. winning. It's about trying to get the best... Uh, information out there and people make up their minds and then you have a percentage of people who do a change. This is... As we saw last week in The Age, there's an article about uh, Alice who previously didn't like cyclists, now rides. These are... And the key of... part there was the infrastructure and what a great article that was. That Perfect was. timing. Same day as the meeting. Brilliant article. And, and those sorts of stories we heard coming through through the, the verbal presentations to the meeting that evening as well. People with those very human stories about uh, how they couldn't cycle in certain parts of the city before because they feared for their lives, and now they can, mm. and thank you, Council, because you're helping to stop me get injured or I don't feel like I'm about to die anymore. Like, like these are incredibly powerful, important stories to tell. And so you're right. It's not always about the data and the evidence. You still need those direct human stories in order to sway mm. and keep politicians on track because we don't only make decisions based on evidence and data. Politicians are humans like everyone else. And uh, to look at, uh, you know, like uh, trends overseas and data points and the rest of it, major economic centres across the world, i.e. cities, are doing this sort of thing towards micro-mobility. Uh, and it's not just COVID, it's not just, uh, you know, we want to get this infrastructure in because we see uh, an, an opportunity to do it. It's the biggest swing of environmental concerns, climate change concerns, and this is people are taking a, a more than a personal interest in what their activities can do and can influence. Now, to, to close, there's a, an important uh, meeting coming up on the 29th of June to do with uh, the uh, City of Melbourne budget. Can you speak to that? Quite excited about this. So uh, we've been working hard as a group of councillors developing our 
council plan for four years and our budget and trying to demonstrate that that budget resources the council plan. So I've got some great stuff in the council plan uh, about safety and making sure that people can access the city conveniently and safety and safely. And for the first time, we're publishing four years' worth of Capital Works projects rather than one. What we've managed to get in the draft budget, which is out for public consultation at the moment and the final version will come back on the 29th, is $8.06 million for local roads yep. uh, the next financial year, plus whatever carry forward there was from this financial year, then $4 million, $4 million and $4 million. So we're still trying to do as much early as we possibly can because spending early in a recession is important for economic reasons, but we also want to deliver as many of those lines as possible so we can get that transport mode happening early for the good of the city, for the good of public safety, for the good of the local economy as well. Mm-hmm. But we've also got the delivery of the from Kilda Road bicycle lanes in there. We're offering to deliver that for the state government with a state government grant, and so you'll also find $60 million in the City of Melbourne budget for delivery of cycle infrastructure on State Road. Once you add in the completion of Exhibition uh, Street and a range of other small projects, uh, we've got $90 million for cycle infrastructure over four years, and that is a record level of expenditure for the City of Melbourne, and that vote is coming up on the 29th of June. So can people uh, speak to that or uh, make submissions? Or is that closed? Uh, the special meeting for submissions on the budget is uh, at an early meeting on the 29th and the deadline for that closed on the 15th of June. Okay. Um, there are some submissions, including from uh, Bike Melbourne and others that I've seen. Uh, but from here on in, uh, it's about making sure that uh, the 11 pollies in the room uh, understand the arguments well, but um, yeah, those submission deadlines are closed. And I'm... So pleased to hear that City of Melbourne have stepped up about uh, St Kilda, uh, St Kilda Road. That has been a long running. We're going to do it. No, we're not going to do it. No, you won't hear it. In my lifetime, sort of, you know, all the media stuff, and people's lives and stuff are at risk. It needs to be done. Needed to be done years ago. Yep. Next best time is now. So we just got to get on. So thank you for your time today. <laughs> Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from the First Nations perspective. Presented by Dari Manmoro. Starts Monday, June 21st at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Okay, thank you to uh, Councillor James Conlon from the City of Molland and uh, Councillor Rolhan for making time for another catch-up on issues across those two councils. Again, again uh, we're still doing our Radiothon thing, so if you want to give to Yarrabowska Users Group Radio, you can go to our Give Now um, thing that we've been uh, putting all over the place online, or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash 
donate and give there. And don't forget, you can call the station on 9419-8377 and the text number is 04888-09855. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367. 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Up next, we have a song called Righteous Woman by Paul Kelly. There she stands in the spotlight. Now the music begins The left leg won't stop trembling But there's nowhere to run The soldiers summon at the station But the mother is gone 
hears the knock on her dressing room door. She takes the note and reads it, then lets it drop to the floor. Now she drifts on down slowly to the backstage door. Righteous woman, righteous woman. 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 Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff. And book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. With hundreds of millions of dollars being donated by our largest corporations to the major parties to basically buy outcomes for those donations. And that really skews the political system and it's why we don't see action on climate change. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. Achievements like the Disability Royal Commission are where disabled people came together for decades to work to achieve this historic investigation and between that and the wonderful work of the student strike movement for climate of extinction rebellion and so many more community powered campaigns and movements across the nation that also gives you a lot of hope and a lot of reason to continue the work for a better future for everybody 3CR Radiothon community powered radio to donate Call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR. That was Righteous Woman by Paul Kelly. Up next, on the 21st of June, UNESCO sorry, released its draft State of Conservation Report about the Great Barrier Reef. And we hear from Dr. Lisa, Lisa Schindler, who is the campaign manager for the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Lisa starts by explaining the draft decision and how it was reached. So the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation uh, which is an advisor to the World Heritage Committee, released its draft decision. And this decision was to recommend that the Great Barrier Reef be placed on the World Heritage in Danger List. The Great Barrier Reef has been on the warning list for since, I think, 2011. Um, and so it, it's a surprise, but it's not, it's not at the same time. The government has been warned a number of times that progress in terms of water quality has been slow and the um, UNESCO has 
time and time again expressed concern around inaction from the Australian government in terms of their climate policies. And last year, there was a report from UNESCO that downgraded the health of the Great Barrier Reef um, to critical. So this is following along from that. And um, clearly the prognosis is not good, um, and we've known this for some time, as you said. Um, can you give us more of an idea of the state the reef is in, um, so the scale of the damage and at what rate it's occurring? Yeah, we've had since um, 2016 three major bleaching events, which has caused significant damage to coral. There was a study that showed that about 50% of coral coverage in the Great Barrier Reef has been lost. And this is this is huge for yes, the Great Barrier Reef is a huge ecosystem, but fifty percent coral loss in a short amount of time is is really significant and really concerning. And the prognosis from as I mentioned with the IUCN is that really the status of the reef is critical. The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority in twenty nineteen downgraded the Great Barrier Reef health to very poor with climate change being the biggest risk to the Great Barrier Reef, but also other threats such as poor water quality, um, unsustainable fisheries, as other parts that are impacting the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty alarming. And um, the recommendation to list the reef as in danger was just part of the draft report. Um, what else was included in the report? So it's a draft decision. It's a decision that UNESCO is recommending that the World Heritage Committee um, accept when they meet in July. And the World Heritage Committee is there's 21 member nations and they will then confirm on whether the decision is, whether they accept that decision or not. Um, and do you think that's likely to happen or...? It's usually common that they will accept the decision. The UNESCO is the um, their environmental arm, that, um, and this decision is, is an environmental decision, despite what the Australian government has been implying. As we said, they've had lots of notice that the reef health is critical, and it, that, that's their advice, and it would be unusual for them not to accept it. Okay, yep. And um, in terms of the response from the Australian government, um, they've been pretty clear that they intend to strongly oppose the recommendation. Um, the Environment Minister, Susan Lay, has said she's stunned by the decision and described it as a backflip on previous assurances. Um, and they've suggested it's the result of pressure from China. Um, what do you make of the government's response? I'm not sure how much you can speak um, to the international politics at play, but is it in line with previous decisions? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as I said before, this is an environmental decision. It's UNESCO, so the United Nations Environmental Arm, and the World Heritage Committee is made up of 21 members from a whole range of countries. And the Australian government has been given multiple warnings that they are not stepping up to the plate when it comes to climate. We saw, you know, recently with Biden and the UK all stepping up and committing to net zero emissions and Australia still not committing to that. So it should be no surprise that this has happened. It's been disappointing the reaction that the um, Australian government has had to this. They should be really focusing on how 
to get the reef off the endanger list and how moving forward they need to manage the reef rather than trying to play politics on this. Yeah, absolutely. And I understand um, part of the reason behind this decision uh, was that the government haven't met previous targets that were set. Um, What are some of the targets they haven't been meeting? So as part of the, back in 2011, the UNESCO sent out a reactive monitoring mission to assess the, they were concerned about intense coastal development along along the Great Barrier Reef coast, and they sent out someone, sent out a reactive mission to assess it. And the mission, they found that there was a lot of concern around how the Great Barrier Reef was currently being managed. They then um, put, this is when the reef went on the endangered warning list and gave the government points that they had to do to, you know, to take the concern away from the Great Barrier Reef. The the Australian and Queensland government solution has been the Reef 2050 plan. And the Reef 2050 plan is an overall encompassing management plan for the Great Barrier Reef. Now, the um, UNESCO has, you know, commended the government for creating the plan but also one of the reasons why the endanger listing recommendation has occurred is because there is no real climate action within the plan. And also because the water quality targets that they've set, and these water quality targets are set based on the, you know, the clarity of water that's needed for healthy corals and seagrass, but the commitments that the Queensland and Australian government have made are not accelerating rapidly enough. Yeah. And um, what's the significance of an endangered listing? Um, I know you said there's a few reasons behind um, the reef being in its current state, though I understand it's the first time a listing like this has been made due to climate change. Um, So what kind of ramifications does a listing like this happen or what power do they have to hold the government to account? Yeah, yeah. Being put on the endangered list as a developed country that is supposed to have the best management of a of a reef is huge international embarrassment for the Australian government. It's also, um, you know, it's difficult for tourism. I know that there's probably going to be tourism operators out there who work in the Great Barrier Reef that um, are going to be really upset by this decision and worried. They have been really badly hit by COVID and there would be concern that this would then create alarm around the world that the reef is, um, you know, not worth visiting. But this really hasn't happened with other listings. So um, it's definitely an embarrassment. And for a World Heritage listed, um, you know, icon like the Great Barrier Reef to go on the endanger list is is huge and... um, the federal government should feel ashamed that they haven't been able to, you know, step up to the plate on climate action. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there won't be a reef to visit if we don't do something. Well, that's right. It's on their watch. And this is, um, they are the guardians of the reef, really, at the time. And this is what's happening. And they, they continue to ignore and pretend that, it, you know, they don't need to do anything pivotal on climate when they do. As guardians of the Great Barrier Reef, they should be out leading other nations as to how to achieve 1.5 degrees Celsius in terms of warming, um, but they're not doing it. Yeah. And um, probably the most important question, um, what would the Australian Marine Conservation Society to like to see next? 
what you see as the most important or most critical next steps in terms of um, protecting the reef from climate change and improving the water quality? Yeah, I mean, the Australian government needs to urgently commit to a 1.5 degree pathway, um, and that means that they need to commit to measures that limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Global warming is obviously a global problem, but as I said previously, Australia isn't even doing its fair share in the problem, and it should really really be out leading the way in how we do this. Um, And that also, you know, to get to that 1.5 degree pathway, we need to be urgently phasing out coal, oil and gas, saying no to projects like the Clive Palmer-owned mine that's been proposed 10 kilometres from the reef coast. Um, We need to rapidly reduce our emissions. This is all fundamental to protecting the reef and not just the reef, but the tens of thousands of lives and livelihoods that depend on it. Yeah. Excellent. All right. And um, lastly, what can listeners at home do to advocate for the protection of the reef? They should be getting in touch with their local federal member, um, expressing their concern and outrage, really, that um, the government has let this happen on their watch. You're listening to 3CR. That was Dr Lisa Schindler, the campaign manager for the Australian Marine Conservation Society, discussing UNESCO's draft decision to place the Great Barrier Reef on the list of World Heritage Sites in Danger. Up next, we've got a song for you called Bad Blood by River of Snakes.
That was Bad Blood by River of Snakes. A bit of love, a bit of rage, and a whole lot of bass to start your Monday morning. You're on 3CR. Up next, we have an interview from Done by Law. MJ and Beth spoke to Angus Murray from Irish Bentley Lawyers about the proposed online surveillance laws and what it means for digital rights in Australia. A very warm welcome to you, Angus. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, MJ and Ingrid. Glad to be here. Angus, can you start by giving us an overview of what's meant by the phrase protection of digital rights? I mean, what are digital rights and how do we exercise them? That's a very good question. And I think the best way to answer that is to take us back to the inception of human rights, or at least as they're articulated in the December 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which had the intention of promoting and serving to safeguard and protect fundamental freedoms that should be afforded to all human beings. In my view, underneath each human right, as they exist in international law uh, and as they've been ratified across various countries, the majority of countries globally, is the two fundamental concepts of autonomy and dignity. That is that humans should be able to interact autonomously and be dignified and have dignity in their interactions. No human rights are absolute, and the interesting aspect of all human rights is the balancing act that's required as they interact uh, between each other, and I guess many rights, in many different contexts. With the advent of the information age and the digital technologies now available to us, digital rights are the human rights we have in the digital or electronic environment, uh, and that is what I mean by a protection of digital rights. It's important also, I think, to classify slightly differently civil liberties or civil rights, which are very similar, in my view, to human rights, but more focused on the interaction between the citizen and the state and the way that the state operates or controls uh, or governs, if we're using that word, uh, the individuals that comprise the state. So would digital rights intersect with um, other rights that we might be more familiar with, like the right to privacy? Yeah, so the right to privacy is a very good example. The right to privacy intersects with other rights in the digital context. So a right to be able to exploit uh, intellectual property intersects with the right to privacy where rights holders might have an interest in knowing who is unlawfully reproducing intellectual property uh, and who is causing harm to intellectual property rights holders. Privacy can also interact with the rights to safety and security in the sense that there is a necessary balance that needs to be struck between the preservation of human life and the safety of citizens within a sovereign territory and the privacy of citizens within the sovereign territory uh, that may be impacted by uh, law enforcement identifying certain aspects of groups that have uh, malicious intentions against people or the right to movement, which may be an even easier example where people produce aspects of their identity uh, to validate and verify their identity for the purpose of travel. So we've just heard a little blurb about the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Bill from 2020. Angus, what what is this bill and what powers would it give rise to if it's passed? Yeah, so the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Bill 2020, which I'll simply refer to as Identify and Disrupt, is a new piece in the ever-growing suite of surveillance legislation uh, being entered into force by the Australian government. In effect, as you said, there are 
three significant powers in the form of warrants that are being introduced via the Identify and Disrupt legislation. The first is a data disruption warrant, which would enable the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Crime Commission to access data on one or more computers. Uh, and the definition of computers in the Surveillance Devices Act was recently broadened via the Assistance and Access legislation to be a computer, two computers, two or more computers, a network of computers or any of the above, which to me sounds strikingly like the internet. And with a data disruption warrant, accessing data on a computer and performing disruption activities for the purpose of frustrating the commission of criminal activity. Uh, so effectively altering or disrupting data on a computer where that computer is suspected to be used in the course of a criminal activity. The second warrant uh, is a network activity warrant, which is intended to enable the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Crime Commission to collect intelligence on criminal networks operating online, so effectively monitoring uh, traffic information passing between networks of computers for the purpose of surveilling those uh, activities. A third warrant, uh, which is the account takeover warrant, which would allow the Federal Police or the Crime Commission to take over a person's account for the purpose of gathering evidence on criminal activity. And that third warrant is quite interesting because there's been a series of interesting decisions uh, overseas, most notably in the US, with uh, account takeovers and effectively entrapping people into criminal offences. And then fourthly, there are a number of minor amendments that come through the Identify and Disrupt uh, Bill that would serve to bolster and enhance the controlled operations regime to ensure that controlled operations uh, by law enforcement can be conducted, in their view, effectively in an online environment. And what sorts of criminal activities um, is the bill seeking to thwart? What sort of um, crimes are we talking about here? So the, the rationale behind this piece of legislation, like with most surveillance legislation that's been introduced into Australia, particularly introduced into Australia over the last six years, is the detection, prevention uh, and law enforcement responses to serious criminal activity. And serious criminal activity is described in each of the explanatory memoranda to the um, surveillance legislation over the last six years as child exploitation material, human trafficking, serious drug offences and terrorism. Uh, that isn't, in my view, the scope of this legislation. It's the bill for Identify and Disrupt specifically defines a relevant offence to include serious Commonwealth offences, and a serious Commonwealth offence is a predefined uh, term in the Crimes Act, which includes or constitutes Commonwealth offences where the maximum sentence is greater than three years. And to put that into context, uh, one of the offences listed in Section 15, capital G, subsection 2 of the Crimes Act, where that definition comes from, is the, um, the importation of fauna. Another is dealings in child abuse material, another is arms importation, but it goes so broad as to include tax offences uh, and bankruptcy act offences and a number of other offences that could be prescribed in a regulation which wouldn't require parliamentary scrutiny and could be passed. So the short answer to your question is an offence of more than three years uh, in prison, which is a very low bar, and the longer answer is Parliament's intention, I, I think, and it should be, is a very, very serious end of criminal offending, uh, dealing with terrorism and uh, human trafficking, child exploitation. And you've spoken, it's Beth here, Angus, you've spoken about the warrants that the bill proposes to establish. 
when a warrant is required in order to access, exercise powers, um, that obviously has to be issued by either a judge or an appointed member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Is this an adequate safeguard against potential misuse of the powers identified in the Bill? That's a very good question. Unfortunately, Electronic Frontiers Australia and the civil society organisations that supported the mission put into the um, Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security uh, weren't invited to a hearing, and that's the point that I think is particularly live for discussion. If I take, for example, a data disruption warrant, Section 27KA of the Bill, uh, or uh, would be amended, requires that a data disruption warrant could issue from either an eligible judge or a nominated AAT member, that is, Administrative Appeals Tribunal member. That requirement that it's either the tribunal or an eligible judge is a better safeguard than previous surveillance legislation, like the Assistance and Access Act, which only required authorisation through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal uh, or members of law enforcement. My view, though, is it isn't a safeguard that's at a high enough setting in the context of the tools and operations that are being deployed through Identify and Disrupt. And if I take a comparison of that um, ability to have a, a warrant issued for either an eligible judge or an AAT member, there's been a very long progression of litigation in the European Union stemming from decisions in uh, the UK, uh, which was the colloquially known and, and probably appropriately known as the Big Brother Watch uh, litigation. And that's a series of civil society organisations that have taken uh, mass surveillance regimes in the UK to pass all the way from the UK courts right the way up to recently in the Grand Chamber. Uh, going back to the, the starting point of that chain of litigation, uh, before the UK courts, it was found by the European Court of Justice in that decision, which is Big Brother but Watch in the United Kingdom, that where secret uh, surveillance techniques are deployed, and I'm quoting from the decision here, it is in principle desirable to entrust supervisory control to a judge, judicial control offering the best guarantees of independence, impartiality and a proper procedure. That um, proceeding, that judgment, has gone all the way upstairs to the Grand Chamber of the Court of Justice of the European Union, with its decision being delivered just shy of a month ago, on the 26th of May, finding that the UK's mass uh, surveillance or bulk surveillance regime is unlawful in the context of Article 8 and other sections of the European Human Rights Convention, which is the right to privacy. Uh, in the context of assistance and access, the threshold should be specifically a judge and a judge in a superior jurisdiction because, as is identified in the Big Brother Watch decisions, these are warrants and techniques deployed by law enforcement necessarily without the individual or individuals, the subject of the warrant, being aware that they're under observation. And that's something that would require full and complete superior and senior judicial control. Great. Thanks so much, Angus. Um, just in terms of this bill, it's premised on the idea of safeguarding, amongst other things, national security. What's the problem, in your view, of using this term as a blanket to enable the passage of legislation that has the power to infringe the human rights of Australians? That's a very good question, and it's a very politically charged uh, question and response. In my view, there is 
an absolute need for our government to protect the security and safety of Australian citizens, and I don't think anyone could reasonably disagree with that proposition. The exercise that government's charged with is ensuring that our freedoms and our democratic sovereign state is protected and preserved. It becomes very difficult when the conversation stems to the point that you are either accepting your rights being stripped away for the purpose of keeping you safe from terrorism or you're supporting terrorism. And by that I mean focusing the media rhetoric and the political rhetoric around these bills and legislation as they're introduced to a context of it's about child exploitation material, counter-terrorism and human trafficking without disclosing the full potential scope of the legislation makes it very difficult for anyone to have a meaningful conversation about where the checks and balances should exist. And that's particularly a concerning proposition in Australia because national security exists in our constitution. We have very, very few other rights guaranteed in the Australian constitution. And unlike most Western democratic countries, we don't have a constitutionally or at a federal level legislated human rights framework that would be enforceable and allow Australian citizens to check and balance these powers against their operations. Is it different in other jurisdictions, Angus? I mean, how do we compare in Australia to foreign jurisdictions when it comes to protection of digital privacy? I've described Australia's privacy legislation, the law of privacy in Australia, as immature when one looks over to either the European Union or the United States. If we take the European Union as a relatively uh, easy example, I've just mentioned the Big Brother Watch uh, proceedings where the Grand Chamber of the European Union uh, has found that the bulk interception and surveillance regime that was deployed in the United Kingdom contravened Article 8 of the European Human Rights Convention. That is a jurisdiction and a jurisprudence that is heavily focused around the protection and preservation of human rights. And one could say that Europe has a very long history of human rights violations and that long history of human rights violations has entrenched within that community a very strong desire to protect human rights and to ensure that past atrocities are not repeated. In America, the constitutional rights that are enshrined in the um, the bill, constitutional bill, have been very, very heavily tested over the, the relatively long jurisdiction in comparison to Australia that is the United States. And those rights are fundamental to Americans. One problem we have in Australia, and this is an issue that I come across quite frequently speaking to, to people on the street about these kind of issues, is there's an assumption that the rights that are guaranteed in America and the way that we see Americans depicting life in uh, mainstream media and through Hollywood productions gives Australians the impression that we have things like the Fourth and Fifth Amendment privileges that Americans have, and we don't in Australia. We live in a very, very different landscape. It's interesting because our our courts have progressed this in a very different way to the, the European or the US courts. And a big reason for that is the basis upon which Australia has started this conversation. And without intending to take this into too long of an answer to your question, that, um, that process of developing a body of law, I think, has been exemplified recently in the High Court. And there was a decision uh, delivered just last week on the 16th of June uh, that I think warrants everyone being aware of, although it's not specifically in relation to privacy, the um, High Court delivered its judgment in Liberty Works Incorporated and the Commonwealth of Australia. And for anyone who's particularly interested in reading High Court judgments, the neutral citation is 2021 
decision, the High Court considered whether the right to political opinion and the implied right to free speech exist in Australia. Uh, and I found particularly captivating the uh, decision and the reasons that were given by the recently appointed Justice Stewart, who cited a, a decision of Justice Dawson. And if I can quote very briefly, Justice Dawson's position that was endorsed by Justice Stewart as recently as last week, it reads, whilst it may disappoint some to find that the Australian Constitution provides no guarantee, express or implied, of freedom of speech, that is because those who frame the Constitution consider it to be one of the virtues of representative government that no such guarantee was needed. I have else dealt with the matter in which the Founding Fathers placed their faith in the democratic process rather than the constitutional guarantees to secure those freedoms regarded as fundamental in any democratic society. They took the view that constitutional guarantees operate as a fetter upon the democratic process and did not consider it necessary to restrict the power of Parliament to regulate those liberties which the common law recognises and nurtures. That quote, I think, really amplifies why we're indifferent in Australia to our, our friends overseas, and that's the, the basis or the, the foundation of our law being in the Constitution had founding fathers that considered that our Parliament could deal with this. Uh, I don't think our Parliament has dealt with this, and I think that the number of recent examples in the courts and the particularly intrusive legislation that's being passed uh, over the last six years, including the uh, bill identifying disrupts that's now before Parliament, really warrants Australians honing focus on that issue of whether what we have today is still uh, an acceptable fit-for-purpose context, given it was created over 100 years ago. That was Angus Murray chatting to MJ and Beth from Dunbar Law about the proposed Identify and Disrupt Bill. You can listen to the rest of this interview by visiting www.3cr.org.au slash law. That's www.3cr.org.au slash law. You're on 3CR Breakfast. UNICEF Australia has just released a report entitled Children's Voices in a Changing World. The report documents the experiences of children and young people across Australia throughout 2019 to 2021. This week, 10 UNICEF Young Ambassadors presented the report to parliamentarians in Canberra to lobby for changes that would benefit children and young people. Joining us in the studio is Jacob Gamble, a UNICEF Young Ambassador and our own 3CR Breakfast presenter. Jacob, can you tell us what this report is all about? Hey, thanks for, thanks for having me, Fong. Um, so this report was a culmination of 178 consultations with around 3,263 children and young people aged between 7 to 20 years old. So 40 of those consultations were held online during the COVID pandemic. Um, and essentially, this data was all put into the report, which we know as Children's Voices in a Changing World. And we detailed about six different sections, um, COVID recovery, climate and environment, mental health and well-being, equality and inclusion, learning and education, and child and youth participation. So I think the main message of the report was that children and young people are bouncing back from COVID-19. So many of them talked about the disruptions to their learning, uh, the increase in domestic responsibilities, um, and some children and young people also had to financially support their families, which, as you can imagine, is quite stressful for someone Mm. who is still a developing mind. Uh, So essentially, we 
developed a platform for action from these six key areas. Um, and some of the, the areas that we talked about this week were climate action. So probably in, in every consultation, actually, uh, children and young people raised this as an important concern. So they wanted bold and concrete action to reduce our emissions because they felt like the earth that they were inheriting was not going to be the same as the ones enjoyed by the previous generation. So that was definitely a large uh, thing that we were lobbying for last week in Parliament. Um, and another issue as well was mental health. So particularly in online spaces, young people felt like they weren't equipped with the tools that they needed to, to navigate social media. Um, and they also felt like there was still a bit of a stigma in, in accessing mental health services. So um, a lot of people were talking about the intergenerational divide between um, counselling services and themselves. Um, and a lot of people as well were talking about the need to, to strengthen our um, sex ed in our education system too, because as we know, uh, sexual consent has been a large uh, headlining issue recently, and I think a lot of young people that resonated with, with many of them. Um, so yeah, I guess climate change and mental health were the two main issues that I was discussing, but also youth participation was a key one as well. So young people felt like there weren't a lot of formal participatory pathways for them to actually advocate for a lot of the issues that they wanted to. Um, and many of them, particularly in the younger cohorts that we talked to, actually didn't understand um, the parliamentary system and they didn't really know what was going on. So I thought... Um, they probably needed some more youth-friendly information to actually empower them to understand what's being talked about in Parliament. Because as we know, you can you can Google it online, but it's mm. it's very um, densely filled legal terminology. Yeah, it's not very accessible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. So yeah, I so we met with um, about fifty-six parliamentarians over Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, um, and I actually had a chat with my fellow young ambassador. Franklin Hooper, who is a mental health worker uh, living in Melbourne. Great. So my name is Frank. I'm 21 years old. I'm originally from the rural part of the Northern Territory. I lived in Canberra for a bit and now live in Melbourne. I work for a mental health organisation in Melbourne and I'm a UNICEF Young Ambassador. Awesome. So Frank, we've just spent a day in meetings with a group of politicians talking about our report. How are you feeling overall? Oh, well, I think what comes with that statement is, of course, a statement that I'm feeling very tired. <laughs> but I'm feeling really positive as well. Um, I spoke to politicians on a multiple from multiple parties, and I think the one clear theme that came out of all of that was that they are all very supportive of young people in some way. Um, and I think that, that is shown simply by their willingness to meet with UNICEF ambassadors in the first place. But I think that it's a really good sign for what's to come for young people in, in politics and policy. And I think if we keep working at this, there's a real a chance of having young people more involved in politics and policy work. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And who did you meet with today, just out of interest? Um, I met with um, quite a few people, so I had six meetings today, uh, which is quite a few. Um, two people... Um, that I really enjoyed meeting with were Russell Broadbent. Um, so he is one of the most long-standing members of Parliament um, and 
he was quite interesting to meet with and has campaigned a lot for um, environmental sustainability within government. So that was quite a good chat we had. And then I also met with Ken Wyatt, who's the Minister for Indigenous Australians. And that was a really special meeting. It was quite short, but he gave us some really good guidance on how to better engage with young people and also encourage the work that UNICEF Young Ambassadors are doing in engaging with young people, really driving home the message that young people want to be engaged by other young people and that's the best way to do it and that adults uh, shouldn't be part of that equation. Definitely, no. I think that really sums up the message of UNICEF well, which is young people are experts in their own lives and it's definitely something that's applicable to just about any cohort of of people within society. So uh, you mentioned before that there was a lot of politicians who were responsive to some of the issues that you raised. Was there any one particular issue that kept coming up in your meetings? I think one particular issue that comes up, that has come up in a lot of the meetings and also in the report as like a highlight issue of everything that we've identified so far has been mental health and well-being and specifically looking at mental health throughout COVID and how COVID impacted mental health and then expanding on that, looking at mental health in a more environmental aspect and then equality um, and how that works in with mental health. And I think um, in particular we covered topics such like climate anxiety and how um, environmentalism and the impact of the environment is making young people anxious about the future and anxious about like for example if they want to bring children into the world and what their future is going to look like and how different it's going to be from now if we don't take action immediately. We also spoke a bit about how um, the mental health services and clinical services in particular are funded, um, commenting a, a bit on the recent budget that was released um, which benefits a lot of mental health services and also speaking I in particular spoke about um, how it's how important it is to fund community services as well as mental health services for the same purpose of trying to limit the number of young people who eventually will need to access clinical mental health services. Community services are the groundstone of any part of Australian society and it's incredibly important that those community services are there to support young people as they grow up and young people's families as they're raising those children. Yeah, absolutely. That was such an awesome answer. Thanks, Frank. And I suppose as well, if there was one or or two actions that you want politicians to take around mental health, what would they be? I think a few of the actions we've been speaking about um, with the Young Ambassador cohort have been around um, involving young people in more valuable consultation. And so I think that's one action that I would really like to personally see is involving people in consultation that's not only va- not only like listening to young people but actually taking on what young people say and taking actions from what young people have said, not using it as a tokenistic tick box activity to get more funding, but using it as a way for young people to actually feel like and actually know that they're being heard. And as I said before, the best way for politicians to do that is to involve young people directly with their business, involve young people directly with policy making, have them in their offices, have them in their councils, employ young people in decision making that actually makes a difference. And you'll get more young people voting, you'll get more young people interested in politics, you'll get more young people working at those political levels to make change. Because we've seen 
young people taking on advocacy roles in the masses in these last few years. And I think that's a testament to how much young people want to be involved. And I think it's now up to the people who are in those positions of power to take the message that young people are screaming out and really do something with that. Yeah, that's an awesome message to conclude on, Frank. Thanks so much for joining me. So that was Franklin Hooper speaking on mental health in UNICEF Australia's report, Children's Voices in a Changing World. Jacob, can you tell us a little more about the lobbying process and how politicians have responded to your concerns? Yeah, so it was a very interesting experience because we met with politicians from across the board, so from uh, Liberal government members all the way through to Independents and the Greens. And I think a lot of politicians were quite responsive and they said, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. Um, I really want to commit to some of the actions outlined in the reports. Um, so I think one of the highlights for me was probably uh, the WA Greens Senator Jordan Steele-John, who, as we know, is the, the Greens spokesperson for youth, does a lot of work around disability advocacy. Um, so he was fantastic, and, and he took on a lot of the report's um, findings and, and was really asking a lot of great questions. Um, and probably one of the other highlights as well was the, the Labor Shadow Minister for Education, Tanya Plibersek. Mm. Um, she was... She was very lovely, and she actually fed us chocolate and fruit, so it felt a bit like we were, we were being parented by Tanya Plibersek, which was amazing. Um, and some of the politicians were a little critical of the implications of the report, so some of them said, this is fantastic, um, thanks so much, but what do you want me to do with this? Mm. And I think it, it kind of points to a lot of the bureauc- bureaucratic barriers. Um, there's a lot of well-intentioned people in Parliament House at the moment, um, but unfortunately, they just don't have the numbers to vote through really any significant uh, bills for change. So that was um, something we got from a lot of the independent members um, and opposition leaders. Um, and then probably the third more hostile response we received, a lot of, not a lot, I would say just a few politicians uh, challenged some of the report findings. So we heard a little bit about um, internet outages, for example, during COVID online learning and, and some of the politicians were saying, oh, that can't be right. You know, MBN covers 100% of the homes. And um, and there was a, a couple as well that um, felt a bit sensitive about climate change too, which understandably is a controversial mm-hmm. topic in Parliament House. Um, so we had a couple who were saying, oh, the government's doing more than enough. Um, you know, we're doing, we're a world leader in, in climate action and um, the Greens are just instilling fear in young people to get votes. So um, yeah, there was, there was some interesting responses there, but speaking a little more on government advocacy, we are joined by the head of government relations at UNICEF Australia, Oliver White. Hey, Oliver. Hi, Jacob. Morning. Good morning. How are you going? I'm well, thank you. How are you guys? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about your role at UNICEF just to start off? So my role is overseeing UNICEF's um, public policy work, um, its youth engagement work, and its engagement with government. And essentially what we do is we work with government to ensure that all of their laws, policies, and programs um, align and comply with the government's obligations under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Awesome. That sounds great. And can you speak up just a little bit? Sorry, Oliver. 
Um, yeah, and what sure. is the, the process of an NGO such as UNICEF lobbying politicians for, for policy changes? Well, UNICEF's advocacy work is, is grounded in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which the Australian government ratified back in 1990. And this convention covers many rights for children and young people, um, the obvious ones like the right to education, to health care and to be protected. But there are key, uh, four key principles, and that's really ensuring that the best interests of children and young people are always a primary consideration, um, that all children and young people have the right to survival and development, and the um, children have the right to express their views um, freely on all matters affecting them. And finally, that children can enjoy the rights of the convention without discrimination. So we're a nonpartisan organisation and we work with whichever party is in government to ensure that the Australian laws, policies and programs comply with those four key principles and all the other rights in the convention. And we do that by using the latest data and evidence um, so that that the policy um, reform that we're suggesting um, is, is... it is, is informed by, by data and evidence. Um, we include the voices of children and young people and work hard to connect children and young people directly with decision makers so they can hear from them themselves. Um, and we engage our many supporters in this work so that our, our politicians and political leaders understand that there is public support um, to take action on many of the issues that are facing children and young people in Australia today. Yeah, fantastic. And and you mentioned before that UNICEF is nonpartisan and, and that it works with, with government on many different issues. What would you say are some of the key challenges faced when trying to advocate for policy change? There are many challenges when advocating um, for children and young people, but I think there are three, you know, big challenges um, that we face here. The number one challenge is that despite Australia being a signatory to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is an international convention, it's international law, the rights of children aren't enshrined in domestic law. So there's really no domestic legal obligation um, for either the federal or state and territory governments to ensure those rights are respected. So in some instances they are, and in other instances they are not. So really, you know, to to assist with this, we really need to see those rights enshrined in in domestic law. It could be a bill of rights, something like that, um, which makes sure that it's it's really clear and there are are actually enforceable obligations on the government. Um, Secondly, the big challenge is the responsibilities for children and young people in this country are shared across multiple jurisdictions. Um, So we have a federal government, but of course we have state and territory governments. And if you look at education, healthcare, child protection, you have a sort of disparate uh, range of, of laws and policies and programs, really a, a lack of consistency and cohesion across those um, laws, policies and programs. And one of the things that UNICEF has been calling for for some time was to have a minister for children um, at, at the federal level who sits in cabinet. At the moment, there's only um, an assistant minister who sits outside of cabinet. And that minister would have oversight um, for children and young people. They would be fully funded. Um, to implement a strategy and a plan uh, which outlines how the government would protect and support all children. Um, and then thirdly, one of the big challenges um, in this area is that children and young people are, are too often missing from the national public policy debate. Um, children are often invisible in the media or they're an afterthought for government. 
um, you know, if they are seen or considered, it's, they're often viewed as an appendage to a parent or family um, and rarely as an independent stakeholder with their own unique perspectives and contributions. Yeah, interesting. So there's there's no really um, views of, of children and young people as stakeholders. There's a few blurred responsibilities between state and federal government, um, and there's no legal obligations for, for them to act on the, the Convention of the Rights of the Child. So what outcomes can we expect after lobbying politicians to adopt the recommendations of our report, Children's Voices in a Changing World? Well, advocacy is um, sometimes a, a long game and can be a slow process. So for a trip like we just did um, with the Young Ambassadors, this is really about relationship building, putting young people front and centre, um, you know, giving them a seat at the table, giving them a voice and reminding politicians and decision makers um, that young people have incredibly valuable contributions um, and ideas for, you know, the direction of, of the country. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a good outcome in itself. Um, but specifically, one of the things that the Young Ambassadors um, and that UNICEF are jointly calling for is for MPs and political parties to establish mechanisms to listen to children, to engage with them and to be directed by them on matters that affect them. Um, and we're calling on all political parties to set clear commitments for supporting, engaging and listening to children and young people. And that's something that we'll be working with the Young Ambassadors on in the lead up to the next federal election. Awesome. And, and what would you say are three pieces of advice for someone looking to meet with a politician to advocate for change? Yeah, three pieces of advice would be, um, you know, get to know who you're meeting with. Uh, take time to research them. Find out what are their interests, what are their priorities, what motivates them, what are they trying to achieve. Um, a good place to start is to read their maiden speech, which they deliver when they enter Parliament. That gives you a lot of insight into who they are, why they entered politics and what motivates them. Um, secondly, approach the meeting uh, or engagement, you know, as, a, as an opportunity to build a relationship. It's not going to be a one-off meeting. It's an ongoing conversation. So try not to ask for anything too big too soon and try and establish rapport, find common ground, explore, explore ways that you can work together for mutually beneficial outcomes. And thirdly, my advice would be be really clear about what you're trying to achieve. Come to the meeting with a solution to the problem or the issue that you're presenting. The politicians meet with hundreds, if not thousands of people, groups and organisations, and they're all after something. So try to couch what you would like them to do in really simple and easy to understand language and think about how it would benefit them. Could be helping them fix a political or a public problem, could be helping them save resources or something else. Awesome. Those are some great pieces of advice. Oliver, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jacob. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. So that was Oliver White, the Head of Government Relations at UNICEF Australia, and you're joining us on 3CR Breakfast.
You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday, July the 5th to Friday, July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Thoughts within Visions I see Daring to dream My destiny You're on 3CR Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. If you liked what you heard, you can donate to 3CR by calling the number 94198377 or you can SMS your support at 0488809855. Currently, we are up to about $200,000 and we need to raise another 50000 That's an incredible effort. Um, just wanted to shout out the... Um, uh, gardening show uh, on the weekend I think they had an amazing um, they did uh, yeah they had an amazing show and um, it looked like a lot of fun <laughs> in the studio I'm not sure if you saw on social media but yeah like Jacob said um, we've only got $50,000 left to, to raise so um, please you can jump on the website at 3cr.org.au to donate online um, or you can phone us on 94198377. Um, yeah, and thank you for joining us today on Monday Breakfast. Thank you. Up next is Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help support community-powered podcasts for another year.